Hi, friends. Welcome to All Heart with Paul Cardall. Jim Brickman, his distinctive piano style and captivating live performances have revolutionized the popularity of instrumental music, making him a driving force, really an icon, behind modern American music. This hit maker songwriter is the best-selling pianist of all time, and I've always admired Jim for his accomplishments as a fellow pianist. He's really paved the way for other instrumentalists like myself, and I remember when he signed with Wyndham Hill a couple years before I signed with Narada, and I just used to watch in awe as he was all over the radio and absolutely killing it in the business. But he's more than just a brilliant thinker, a creative pianist. He's a man who is all heart. He's an American icon. So welcome to the program, Mr. Jim Brickman. Thank you. It's quite a kind and lengthy introduction. <laughs> well deserved after everything you've accomplished. I mean, you're actually celebrating your 25th anniversary. Yes. Take us back to the very beginning because you did not have a lot of music in your home growing up. I didn't. Uh, I don't come from a musical family at all. Um, but I think like you, Paul, you know, or anybody that has an artistic tendency, whether it's music or art or, or dance or acting or, you know, we all have part of us and the ways that we express ourselves. And to me, that was uh, music. So I, I took piano lessons, but I, I realized uh, later on in retrospect that I was really more of a songwriter than a pianist, but that doesn't show itself when you're a youngster. Right. So um, I was just taking piano lessons like any normal kid might. Um, and I was so, so at it, it you know, I, I don't think that my piano teacher when I was 10 would ever think that I would be recording, let alone playing on a stage or anything like that. Do you remember the very first song you ever wrote with words? It had no, it didn't make sense. It was sort of, it was a love song. And I was, I think, 16. And, you know, what you do when you're starting to write songs, at least in my case, is you imitate. So you take things that you like and you appropriate portions of them for yourself or you you cobble together thoughts and ideas but it's i i think it's um at least at that time when kids weren't as evolved as they are now you just borrow and you know try to try to create something on your own that's original but usually it's derivative that's absolutely i mean i i think that's true for myself i didn't really understand what i was writing what i was creating but it was just flowing out of me as a way to express emotion yes and you finally got a piano at what age how old were you when you first I got a piano when i was 10 okay prior, prior to that i was in um theory class so i would go to a group theory class where you just learn the concepts of, of music and the notes and things, but you don't play or practice like uh, out of a book or learn to read or anything. So I didn't practice outside of it because we didn't have a piano. Sure. Who were your influences as far as pianists? Or were you more influenced just by popular music? Popular music, not not pianists. I've I've never I, I've never really been influenced by 
pianist for the most part because there wasn't a a leader in this particular category when I started. So I mean, who would I follow? Right. What, what pop pianist? So it that's why I tended to be more attracted to singer songwriters who played the piano or you know that weren't per se pianists who really aren't they're just right songwriters that write on the piano and you do distinguish as more of a modern contemporary pianist because there is sadly that phrase new age which has been haunting that genre for a very long time and it's been hard for a lot of pianists like myself, like yourself, others who are contemporary, who do a diverse, um, different styles, and yet we got labeled as new age. Have you ever considered that a problem or a concern with people that are interested in buying your music? I think you have to take advantage of sometimes what, where people put you rather than fight it. Because, you know, does my music fall into that category, whatever that category is, which I think of as ambient, basically. Interesting. Um, I, I don't, but, but if it helps that I, let's say, lead a category where on the New Age album chart, I can have 22 number one albums on a chart that if it didn't exist, I wouldn't be number one on anything. Then I sort of take advantage of where, of, you know, when it's convenient to be new age, then I'm new age. <laughs> when it's convenient to be country or pop, I don't mean convenient, but where there's an opportunity to, to be in, in the company of those categories, you try to embrace them. I think that's wise advice. And I know like, you know, with, with the new age, uh, they've changed, Billboard has changed the policy with who actually is on that list now. Now, instead of new albums, it's whatever is selling that is out there. Yeah, and I, I like I said, I think those, those types of things matter less than they used to, charts matter less uh, in the scheme of things because they used to be very specific radio airplay sales but now with the consumption of streaming and the consumption of the way people listen it's very hard to get a true measure of what is number one what is a hit what it's just I don't think people watch that as much. It doesn't seem to be a, as much of a calling card to say I have a number one song. And I was talking about this with Thompson Square in another episode of how so many unknowns are actually making a very good living over those who are at the top of certain lists and always kind of front and center. There seems to be a handful of musicians who are a lot more successful, but they're relatively unknown. Yeah, I mean, it depends what genre you're in, because streaming, it, it's volume sometimes. So, if, you know, like you with your music or, or me with mine, somebody could be listening to it in a passive way for hours and hours, 
Whereas if, if it's one song by you with vocals, that's a three minute experience. So uh, people use and consume music differently depending on what kind of genre it is. And as a songwriter, your first big radio hit, to my understanding, was Angel Eyes, which was just a simple, beautiful piano piece. It was, there was so much pushback. I mean, what, what it took to get a radio station to play that was, was really a high mountain to climb. It was um, extremely challenging, but like anything, when, you're, when you do something that nobody has done before or hasn't done for decades, like Music Box Dancer, for example, I mean, it's not like it's never happened, but um, relatively speaking, when you do it, it tends to stick out. If it's successful, it, then people notice it because it does stand out. But there's a, a version and a fear by you know, it's just natural that people don't want to take chances and break a mold. I mean, that's just right. Sure. Well, and we share a mutual friend out in Utah who was a programming director at the time, Dane Craig. And I first learned about what you're doing and how you're able to get music onto radio through him. And it was really inspiring because you're right. Piano music on adult contemporary radio what you accomplished, I would say, is miraculous. And yet it was obviously carefully calculated strategy and a lot of work. Well, ask Dane about the first time I walked into the door, not the revisionist history of the success. You know what I mean? What like, and I say that with love. I love the guy. I'm just saying, you know, he, and he'll bring it up. Like his story was most like every program director's story. What do you? what, what, what do you want me to, to, why, who are, you know, it was that kind of a thing, but, you know, things happen in a, in a time, it's, uh, it was of a time, there was a crevice where the door could, you know, was just open slightly to, to appeal to the sensibility of, of a program director when it was like that, and it's not like that anymore, I don't know how, I mean, that would never happen right now. But at the time, you're writing jingles. You understand how radio programming and how it works. Sort of. Um, I was around a lot of radio stations. But, you know, uh, naivete sometimes helps you because you don't realize that there are loose rules of, of sorts. Like, I didn't know anything about I mean, nothing about it. I started to, I started to consume Billboard and radio and records and ask people how, how they did it. But I didn't understand how they picked the songs they played. I didn't understand that record companies um, did promotions with them to try to get a record played. I didn't understand that there were, that th there was a lot of quid pro quo, you know, I'll play a concert for you for your audience for free, I'll come in and do that if you play it, play it once. Um, not like in a pay for play kind of a way, but in a, you know, just you, you had to give them something 
I don't mean gift certificates to right. American Express, even though some wanted that, but um, or the Red Lobster. But um, <laughs> there are a few of those. Like, why do you want lo Red Lobster gift certificates anyway? Oh, um, so, but again, when you're naive, you don't know you're not supposed to say something to someone, <laughs> or like you know, it's it's better not to know that you can't call, you know, the president or something, you know, like you just do it and you don't know you're not, you're, right. and there's no not supposed to, it's just that, you know, every industry, oh, you don't do it like that. And then I always would push back and go, well, why not? I mean, you can try, you don't know. Well, and what you did as, you know, in a way you are a mentor to me because I would watch what you're doing and I would pay very close attention and I would start to apply those principles. And I will say, a lot of the reason why I'm successful is because you went and teared down a wall that was there, the stigma of contemporary piano that was associated with candles and seances and things that are relevant to just feeling something beautiful and warm that's healing, that's romantic, that's beautiful. And that's what you did um, and so it's, it's been fascinating to me to watch how you're able to pull it off. And that's why the conversation about getting on the radio, I think parallels with streaming radio today, because we have a situation now where you have curators who mm -hmm. are like the old programmers mm -hmm. and there's so many different companies that will offer artists deals. Oh yeah. Give us this much money every month and we'll hit the curators when in reality they a diamond a dozen and it's not necessarily going to be the most effective at getting your music streamed well the 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 way you measure it is different in other words you you could measure radio so they play at x amount of times you know they play at x amount of times it goes up the chart there there's a there's a way to measure the success uh it also doesn't necessarily translate into sales per se or you know uh, other things you there's um i think sometimes you have to step back from it and ask yourself why am i doing this because i hear that you're supposed to go to a curator and then like what is the objective is the objective to build your brand is the objective to you know oh they played my music 200 times or 200,000 times. But what does that mean in the scheme of things? Is that just to make a little bit of money? Is it to uh, build your base? And you can't build your base because you don't know who it is specifically that's listening. You can't <clears throat> talk to them. So if they're passive, doesn't matter how many hundreds of thousands of people in our genre People don't know it's Jim Brickman necessarily. Right. They just they just have it on and it's nice in the background. That's why I always thought it was smart for Mozart. He just said Symphony One, Two, and Three because people come to you and they say, "Oh, I like Track three, but they don't necessarily know the name, right? Piano album, but if it's a song, they'll know the name of the song, right? Because the vocal, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and how have you seen? the industry evolved in the last, I mean, this is a big question, but 25 years from going from where you were doing 
you know, these radio campaigns to now you've accomplished so much, you know, you've been with a major label, which is not always the best scenario because then you try to get your masters back, things like that. And the freedom that comes, do you feel at this point, you have a lot more freedom in your career as you did in the beginning, in the middle, where do you feel that you are right now? Well, the, yes, the label situation, at least at that time, you had a vehicle to help market and develop. Uh, they, none of them are really that good at it, uh, but it's, they have to be pushed because they don't, they have so many people on their roster and they sort of just throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. They, there's, there's no prescription or formula. And, and so, uh, and with regard to masters and getting them back again, I mean, this, this is what I tell my staff every single day. Oh man, you got to get your masters back. Why? For what reason? Because they're my babies. Okay. What, what is the, why? <laughs> so that I can do what? Try to get it into a commercial, uh, to, you know, wh whatever. So you have, every time you think about, in my view, every path you take, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I going to Dothan, Alabama to play a concert? because maybe there's less competition in the theater. Uh, maybe there's a nice opera house there and a radio station. And as long as you have a theater and a radio station, that, um, there's always people that will come some, some, you know, and I don't take any of that for granted at this time. I, I still go to places where, you know, 100 people show up, 300 people show up. And because that's the kind of thing that at least I can control. I can't control streaming numbers per se. I can't control um, the, uh, whether somebody uh, puts my press release in the newspaper or does an article on me or puts me on television. But the one thing that is is always true is that you can, connect with people one-on-one. -on -one. It takes 50 people at a time, which is a big endeavor and takes years and years to do. But I always go back to no matter what happens in the industry or how it changes or anything like that, you can, if I play a piano, I could, even during this time in the world, um, I could go out in the middle of the street with my piano and that could be a concert and people could stand there. I could pull that off and connect to, but it's one person at a time. And I think many times there are delusions of grandeur when it comes to, I'm gonna be in art, you know, I'm gonna be a star or whatever it is. And, um, you know, it, it always comes, there's always a trajectory, nobody, is just a star. No one. Well, and I want my audience to pay very close attention, particularly musicians, because you're absolutely right. When we are focused on the audience, 
instead of everything that's going on here, it seems like we have a lot more enjoyment, a lot more purpose, a lot more success. And if I were to forward you every person from every small town who said, well, you, you can come into a concert here because Jim has been here. You know, it would fill up your, 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 your whole day. It's because you have gone into all these small towns that a lot of places, you know, a lot of people overlook because they think, oh, well, but you're right. You pick up a fan here, here, and here. And these are individuals with hearts. These are wonderful people. And the type of people that come around this type of music are some of the best people in the world. Well, and the other challenge these days is that promoters of these concerts are few and far between. So if you're always in a situation where you're waiting to be chosen, you're waiting to be chosen for a playlist, you're waiting to be chosen to get booked in a theater, you're waiting to be chosen to be in People Magazine, everything, if you always put yourself in a situation where you're waiting to be picked or you're in line, uh, then you're, you can't control your own destiny. So what, and what I mean by that is that um, in, a, in local towns, when, when I first started, uh, I couldn't get booked anywhere. Nobody would book me because they didn't understand that I, I wanted to be in a theater on stage. I didn't want to be in a club. That wasn't, I'm not a cabaret performer. It wouldn't translate the same way. Um, I'm not a jazz performer in a club. I'm not, you know, I'm not that. And so we just started to produce our own concerts and just rent the theater, buy the advertising, you know, blanket the town. Um, and, and because you can't just wait, you know, I want to play Birmingham, Alabama. Well, no pro promoter is inviting me to play there. So does that mean I can't ever play there? Pretty much, unless I get chosen. So, um, that's brilliant. You have to take control and control you know, for sure. And that's something that must be a diehard Cleveland thing because my wife thinks that same way and has always said, listen, you can't wait for anything. You got to make everything happen. And, uh, is that something your parents instilled in you or is that just who you are and something you've just learned? I think my parents to a certain extent, um, but also it's too much work and too hard to have it not work. <laughs> it's too, it's too, you're, you're trading your life, your personal life for it, at least in my case. Uh -huh. um, you're making a commitment to something and you want to make sure there's a return on that, on that commitment because it's too hard if all I'm doing it for is to put it on my shelf and play it for my family or my grandchildren and say, this is what grandpa used to do. Isn't it pretty? I mean, like there's a, there's a reason we do what we do and that's because we want to share. So if it's inauthentic and it doesn't really, it's something you're trying to be that isn't really who you are, people notice. And then they don't know why they don't like it, but they just not, don't like it, but they just don't feel a connection to it because it's sometimes inauthentic. And when we try to be something that we think people want 
it doesn't work because nobody knows what people want. You just have to put out what you feel is honest for yourself and, um, and put it out there. But it's also a, um, you have to believe it. Yeah. So, and you have to really, really work, work hard. And a lot of people don't, you know, they don't understand. They'll say, well, I don't know what to do um, or how to do it. I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. There's no music business here. How, how am I going to do it? So say, well, is there a theater there? Are there weddings there? Are there places for you to do what you do? And how close are you to South Bend and Indianapolis and, you know, go, go in your region, go play as much as you can. And sometimes, you know, there's this feeling like, well, how much are they paying me? It's like, well, you don't have any value because you, you don't, you haven't done it yet. Right. So you have to go show people that you're worth something. You have to earn it. You have to earn it. I never ask. Uh, right, right now, r- rarely ask, depending on what it is. Well, how much am I getting for it, so I can decide whether I should do it or not? I don't think of the opportunity as uh, as much fiscally as I do about the what it does for the growth of my career fan base. Yeah, your community, your family, really. I mean, yeah, I they will come back yeah. and, you know, if yeah. they like it and you let them sample it. What was that? Uh, forever, but, what was that moment when you were playing something and you, you saw somebody emotionally connect for the first time? Or was there a moment of one fan particular that really affected you as a creator to where you knew this is definitely what I need to do. You know, it, it, it comes slowly for you to realize something like that. It has a momentum. And I think it was more that there was a collective. If there was, if, if it was one person or three people, but when I started to hear a common thread in, a di- in different places, in different regions, in different countries, then I thought, okay, there's a common experience that people are having. And when I saw that, then I thought there's something there. Um, because, you know, I could be, wearing an outfit that five different people have different opinions about whether they like it or not. Right. So yeah. five, five isn't enough. Right. Well, I think you're right. Over time, you start to understand your audience and the demographic and who they are. And I think that's some of the most important advice for any musician is to be aware of the individual's you're performing for, what is it about them that makes them unique and important? And for me, the correspondence with fans can be time consuming, 
but at the same time, extremely worth it. Do you have a, a correspondent relationship with your fans? Do you answer their messages, their emails? Or is that something that's very difficult? Because obviously you've got millions of albums sold and millions of fans. I do. I mean, we do, we do a lot of fan events. We do a lot of, I've always done um, meet and greets before, after, uh, from the very beginning. I've always done um, events, cruises, uh, you know, three-day experiences, things like that. Um, I, it took me a very long time to be comfortable with the persona connection with people. Hmm. You know, I, I didn't do it by any means to be um, the center of attention or to be celebrated or to be famous or I don't really like that part of it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But um, because I just, I, I feel that way in general about people who are celebrated. Right. Like there are everyday heroes in our lives, especially right now in the world that deserve to be celebrated. This is a God-given talent that I was blessed with yes. and I'm just, I'm just sharing it. It doesn't make me more special or something. And I feel when I feel that's why I feel a little uncomfortable. Not so much that that I'm not a good performer because of it because I love performing and I'm a good performer, but I um I would rather share it than talk about it. <laughs> right, right. Well, and the artists that you've collaborated with seem to have that same mindset. You know, Michael W. Smith, he's one who is trying to make a difference, trying to make an impact. Tina mm -hmm. McBride, Donny Osmond, all these guys. Have you had one particular collaboration that's really stood out, that's really just taught you a lesson or made you feel like this is going to really inspire and motivate a lot of people? Um, actually, the, the people that I find to be the most compelling are the icons, people who have spent their entire life, and I mean like entire life, Johnny Mathis, you know, 60 years or something like that. Um, and what inspires me about them is that they, they understand what they've given their life to and they understand that it does this uh -huh. and they're not they're they're not arrogant about it a lot of times young talent that i've worked with or you know midway up the chain has this entitlement mentality and not all i make a gross generalization i just because there are some icons that are very nice people too but for the most part, a Johnny Mathis, a Kenny Rogers, a, a Carly Simon, um, you know, Donnie Osmond, I think they, they've lived a life of this and they truly understand why they still do it, what, what motivates them to, to keep doing it. And that's inspiring to me. Uh, and then, of course, there's this much of it that's like, 
I can't believe Johnny Mathis is singing my song. You know, there's a, there's a, always a hair of that, or I'm writing a song with Burt Bacharach. It's like, I, I have, you, it's hard to wrap my head around until we're doing the work. Then when we're doing the work, I don't, that goes away because it's, you know, it's, they're, they're a colleague. Right. Two gifted people in a room trying to work something out. You know, driving over there is a different story. <laughs> then when you get there, then, it, you know, after that calms down, um, then, then you do the work. You still get nervous performing? No. No more. I never was nervous. Really? It's very strange. But, but the icons preparing to be with them, you do get nervous. Yeah, I mean, my first tour, my first big tour was a co-bill with Olivia Newton-John. And so, yeah. I, you know, I was still in shock the whole time, but it didn't affect my ability. It's like I didn't realize until I was in my early 30s. It didn't, this didn't happen to me until my early 30s. So I was like a grown-up, which makes a difference as well. Because, you know. Sure. But I didn't, I would never have thought it would be so comfortable. It's, the, it's more comfortable for me to be on stage than at a cocktail party. I can understand that and appreciate that. That's uh control issues. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, like it's, you're in, you're in command and, right. and of, of what is going to happen. Uh -huh. You can't control people's reaction. Right. But you can try to um, put it in on the path that you want it to go. And, and you learn as a performer. It's another huge, huge thing. And that is knowing your audience and not being up on stage for yourself. You're there for them. You're there to entertain them. Yes. You're not there just for yourself. Uh -huh. And uh, that's another, you know, I, I, I liken it to, you know, if I want to watch art or see art, that can be hanging in a museum to observe. But to observe live performers just doing what they do and I'm watching them do what they do isn't a mutually satisfying experience for the audience, in my view. Yeah, Mike, there's a, there's a Grammy-winning producer and engineer that also lives in Cleveland, Michael Bishop. And he yeah. told me, he said, the best thing you can do as an entertainer is get out of the way of the music. And I thought that was brilliant advice because when you do, people are more focused on what is coming out and the quality of the material rather than, hey, he's wearing a rhinestone with all these rings playing, uh, you know, the fastest cocktail Liberace piece you can imagine. And so they forget about what's being played. And, you know, there are instrumentalists who go out and do these big shows and it's instrumental music and yet they're doing backflips off the piano and they're all kinds of gimmicks. And uh, do you think that you have to have that kind of stuff in, inside a show? Because I have been to your concerts. You bring out one of the best violinists, fiddlers, uh, Tracy, and I can't remember his last name. Tracy Silverman, yeah. 
Tracy Silverman, one of the best, and you are able to keep the flow going during that show, do you feel like you, you feel like it's okay to go beyond that to impress or do you just try to focus on the music and? No, I actually do. I focus on the, it's a personality driven show. In other words, if Tracy played as well as he did, but, but there wasn't any dynamic camaraderie, conversation, storytelling, humor, right. I, I wouldn't want him. Because it's not, in my show, it's not enough to, to have great music. If that were the case, I, I don't believe in, I, I'm more of like some, I believe in theater, not concert performing. I want, I believe in my relationship, my persona and my music relationship with the audience. And you have to decide who that is. Is he self-deprecating? Is he funny? Is, does he have an attitude? Is he arrogant? Is he kind? Who, who is he? And, and present that to the audience. Um, it's always a part of yourself. It's not all of me because nobody could be as charming, kind, funny as that guy is. He's, right. he's a part of me, but nobody can be that. He, he's a character of sorts, but it's, you have to acknowledge the, re the relationship, why people are there. Um, you know, there has to be, I believe there's gotta be humor, not joke telling, but just relatability. And people, you know, humble, um, kind, generous, funny, um, and comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, the difference between like, if you go, if you, now Elton John is a, an icon, so let's just, we know that. Let's just put that over there. Um, when Elton John performs, you're in the audience right now, okay? I'm Elton John. It's like, look at me. You're, you're selling your wares to me. You're, you're sharing. You can't share when you're doing this. That, that, then people are watching you. Now, because he's singing iconic songs and whatever, people don't care. And at a time, this is just my view. Sure. I, I just, I would so much rather get to know the person whose music I love. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, just listen to the CD. It sounds the same when I play it live. Right. Um, there's no orchestra, there's no band. So there's nobody else to look at but me. <laughs> so I better be engaging and entertaining and, and have an arc you know, just when things get to where people think, oh God, I'm a little sleepy from that, those two solo piano songs. It, my sense is it's time to do something else, like bring out Tracy or, um, and Tracy's not always with me, only at Christmas, but um, time to do something else. It's time to tell an anecdote, time to um, play something up tempo, time to bring somebody up on stage, time to, you know, whatever it is. So you change your set list as you're on stage? As I'm on stage, but I have a really good sense of whether there's fidgeting. Even if I don't see it, uh -huh. I feel it. Because I feel like I'm bored from this three piano songs in a row. 
You know, like you have to think, why are they coming and what do you want them to leave thinking? What are they there for? Why did they spend money to come see me? Like, that's what you have to be thinking. You're not there to just present how talented you are. Do you go to concerts? No. Like <laughs> I, I don't like to go. I don't like, I'm, I don't, uh, I don't like to be, you know, of course now it's perfect social distancing, <laughs> but um, I don't like to be stuffed into a okay. seat and um, it's hard. It's hard for me. I, I love to go to theater, but it's the same challenge that I don't like um, crowded. You get claustrophobic. I do, I do. Um, and also, I, I see enough from being on a double bill or, you know, go, going backstage to see a friend or seeing a few songs or, you know, like I'll go to see friends, but I don't like watch the whole show or I like I just did the Michael W. Smith birthday party thing and, you know, you're backstage, you get to see. So if it's about seeing other performers and what choices they're making, um, I see enough of that, but I don't go for pleasure. That's interesting. And how many albums do you have by now? You have, uh, you've been putting out more. Yeah, I, I, right now, I, I just put as much out there as I, as I can. It's not like the old days where you just do it. You know, I've, I've always done an album at least one a year, but I don't, um, right now, I, there's a huge glut of my stuff, but I kind of don't care because it's very um, narrow in focus. Broadway, you know, um, Disney. Bossa Nova, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's fun for me. And, I, and because of streaming, I just feel like. So it's specific niches within the niche that you've created. Yeah, and I just did the first vocal album where I sang all of my own songs and my own hits, 25th anniversary. Yeah. So my first vocal album. Um, but again, 25 years later, people still don't understand when they get it that it's, that I'm just because of the path that I've taken I never want to be a singer and I never intend to be one. It's okay. just that I, I thought the songwriter singing their own song. So I did it as a 25th anniversary limited edition. But if you, if you see it and you're a fan online, it says Jim Brickman's greatest hits. I don't think you would think I'm singing them all. It's hard to translate what that is. So um, one of the things that being in Target uh, for so many years, taught me was just tell people what it is. The album is right. called Faith. Okay, I know what that is. It's Jim Brickman playing songs of, you know, right. just don't make it so hard for people. Uh, Jim Brickman, the Broadway album. Jim Brickman, Bossa Nova. Don't call it something like Pretty Leaves because that doesn't mean anything. And that, that is exactly part of the reason why I became successful was because I went in the Desert Book and I said, what are they asking for? Because there's a small music section in the Desert Books in Utah. And I was like, well, what are people looking for? They said hymns. And I said, well, where's the music? And I go over and I look at the music. Nothing was titled hymns. So I created hymns, piano solos. 
Right. He became the bestseller. I was That's right. selling the Tabernacle Choir. Yeah. And people were like, how did you pull that off? And I said, I don't know. I'll, I'll reveal that when I'm talking to Jim Breckman in 20 oh. years. No, no. You, you, have to, you have to tell people what, what it is. You know, Tide, the best laundry detergent ever. If they just called it Tide and then say what it was, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm buying. You know, I mean, to me, most of these things we're talking about, if you just step back from it for a moment and you think about, if you think about it, it's, it's really common sense. Huh. What gets in the way is the ego sometimes on one hand, or the uncertainty, the fear, the, those things are what prevent you from, from stepping back from yourself right. and thinking, who am, I going, who am I going to be in this? Who am I in this? Not who am I in, in the world. That you can sure. figure out in, while you're meditating. I'm talking about who am I to the audience? If I'm going to decide that I'm going to be a product, then I better know who I am. No, I can, if I get in an elevator with you and you don't know who I am and you say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a musician. And then you say, what kind of musician? I know how to answer that question. I write inspirational, calm, romantic music that you use to calm, relax, mm -hmm. inspire, and for special occasions. Then the door opens, you, you know <laughs> who I am. Right. I don't have to go. Very specific. Yeah. Instead of, well, I mean, just because I can write a country song and just because I can write that, that, that just confuses people. I'm you a little just, country. I'm a little bit rock and roll. Yeah, you, you can't, people don't consume music that way. They, they're conditioned to, I like country music, even if the music like Valentine isn't country per se. But because somebody who sings it, who's known for singing country, is singing it, it's country. You know what I mean? It's like right. you, you can't lead, lead people to where you want them to go just by saying it. You have to be it. Years from now, when we're all gone, what is it that you hope people remember about you? That they can still use my music to calm them down and, and from an anxiety moment to, um, to celebrate a moment as a soundtrack to something else that they're doing that makes them feel comforted and healed and inspired and romanced and, um, and that there's an emotional connection to, to listening to it with something you may be feeling. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate you being on All Heart. Thank you. Good to see you, Paul. And uh, I wish all of the songwriters watching all of the best success and, and uh, great things ahead. We'll send everybody over to jimbrickman.com for more information on his music and everything he's up to. Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much, Paul. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye. American Songwriter has been a home for songwriters, musicians, and music lovers for over 35 years. And the award-winning pianist, songwriter, and transplant recipient truly believes it is the perfect place for his podcast. This year is the 10th anniversary of receiving a heart transplant. 
for all my fans that have been listening to my music. I want to take them back to the heart of why I do this. Just the simple purity and beauty of a piano. Many of the songs that I recorded are songs in one take. My music is a tool for people to access spiritual feelings. So my hope with this recording and all of my recordings is that people are able to tap into those emotions that are not always easy to get to and just embrace all the beauty that's around you.